ladies and gentlemen, and Corner Kick fam. Welcome back. Another midweek edition of Corner Kick. I am joined by two men with whom uh, I dined the other day. We broke bread. Well, really, we broke bow. We had some nice ramen in Boston. It was great to catch up. But I'm Nathan Strauss, joined by Caleb Rhodes. Hello. And Nick Govinden. Hello there. Yeah, shout out to uh, the Seaport. Shout out to Trillium Brewing Company for sponsoring our uh, lovely Monday evening. Yeah, that was a it was it was a nice evening. Aside from the rain and then the driving back on the pike, and it was raining so hard that I actually had to pull into the Charlton rest stop, and then I slipped on the floor inside the Charlton rest stop trying to go to the bathroom because it was so wet, and people kept tracking in rain. Yeah. But anyways, I digress. Did you know who else um, slipped on the floor this weekend? Joao Cancelo. <laughs> well on that note <laughs> on the that one note, time the one time a slip has gone in liverpool's liverpool favor. favor yeah, yeah. It's not, not quite as monumental as perhaps the last time um uh, not quite as monumental as the last time but yeah nick take it away uh you know liverpool man city we thought that maybe city would have an edge in this game or i thought that city might have an edge in this game but uh liverpool come out on top shout out allison for producing an he really out Ederson, Ederson, producing a nice little goalie assist for Mo Salah, who ragdolled Joao Cancelo around. Um, but yeah, good win for for your boys. An excellent win for my boys. I thought we were going to lose this game. Um, I think I, I came into last week's podcast feeling very down in the dumps about our chances. If you go back, you can see that it was kind of trepidatious. Um I was talking to my dad, who is also a Liverpool fan. If you've been listening canonically to this podcast for long enough, I've talked about my dad. He's a huge, uh, he's a huge red. And we were talking about this game, and I was like, I don't know. I really don't think. I think we're gonna like lose at home. Van Dyke's record of being unbeaten at Anfield is gonna snap. Um, and my dad was like, just have faith in the boys. Just have faith. Have faith. And then he actually uh, had to leave in the middle of the game to go take care of something. Uh, when I was home, I watched. I watched it with him. And then at full time, I just got a text from him that says, I told you so. So he did tell me so. He's a wise man. He is a wise man. And you know who else is a wise man? Jurgen Klopp. Klopp. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Jurgen Klopp fully is bought into this new Liverpool formation. It's a 4-4-2-4-2-3-1. It kind of shifts in between those two things. And I thought it really held Man City to not produce... Any anything particularly great offensively, you know, Erling Holland really only had a uh, a number of really great chances to score from. Really, only one. You know, a header in the first half. And then he was kept quiet by man of the match, Joe Gomez, uh, who I think has had a somewhat of a career renaissance this season and is deputizing very very well for Matip and Kanate. Uh, he did extremely well at Ibrox against Rangers. Did incredibly well one on one against. Holland, James Milner had an incredible performance at right back against Phil Foden, essentially marking him out of the game. And I just thought this was a classic Liverpool performance. It felt very much like shades of, you know, 2017, 2018, beating Manchester City, outrunning them, beating them to the second balls. Um, just really getting back to that sort of grinding things out in a Jurgen Klopp hustle, heavy metal sort of way. And Harvey Elliott, I thought was excellent, industrious on the uh, the right-handed side. Mo Salah was brilliant through the middle, as he has been, you know, coming in from the wing and playing a far more central position. I just thought this was, you know, the full package for Liverpool, including a chaotic cameo. 
from one Darwin Nunez who <laughs> continues to both frustrate and impress. You know, he scored today against West Ham to uh, seal the three points for Liverpool. And his statistics overall are quite good. You know, he's first in uh, first in shots, first in, um, you know, all of these great scoring categories. Um, his finishing is getting better every game. He now has five goals in under 300 minutes in a red shirt. But yeah, this game against Man City was was absolutely debaucherous and chaotic. Squaring the not squaring the ball to Salah, which could have killed off the game, had me shouting at my television. But yes, an incredible. I don't even know how Mo Salah controlled that ball. Did almost like a Cruyff turn to get past Joao Cancelo. Salah, who looks like he's you know back to his best um, after a shaky start to the season. But yeah, I mean, I think this was a a very classic Liverpool performance in many ways, very reminiscent of the early Klopp era, and. It's been a monumental week for Liverpool in terms of shifting the mood, in terms of getting points on the board, and beating Manchester City is always going to be um, a highlight of any one season. And certainly for this Liverpool team in chasing top four right now, it's massive. Yeah, I mean, I think with this performance, Joe Gomez certainly should be on the 55-man provisional squad um, for for the England national team. Uh, But in general, I think this was... Really, I think a tale of a team that was able to adapt generally and a team that wasn't. So this is very smash and grab from Liverpool. They had less than 40% possession, but they produced, you know, 2.1 XG to Man City's one. They created five big chances to Manchester City's one. And they really, you know, got the job done in a formation and a lineup that I doubt the team has ever, you know, trotted out before. I think in contrast, Manchester City, oh, and also shout out to, you know, their whole team for being, I think, the first team this season to blank Holland. Is that correct? At least in the league? Uh, I think Bournemouth might have actually. No, he scored a hat trick. It's not Bournemouth. Um, Shoot, one of the other teams that's close to the bottom. Southampton, Uh, I think. No, he scored against Southampton. I think, okay, so Caleb might be right. (laughs) No, no, no. Hang on. Hang on. We're, we're We're finding the answer to this because I guarantee you there was a team that he didn't score against. If there's something really Nathan good. cares deeply about, it's nope, getting it was facts correct. It was Bournemouth. Oh. <laughs> had, I was so correct. You guys doubted me, and I was so correct. He had just an assist against I have. I have two words for you, Nathan. Free hit. Free but hit. I digress. <laughs> um, <laughs> you guys are so unnecessary. Um, but I, I think, you know, okay, Liverpool were the second team uh, to blank Holland, but the first in, in quite a long time. Um, meanwhile, you know, despite the wealth of, of players that City have available in contrast to Liverpool. And just the wealth of Man and, City, and the wealth in general. highlighted by Jurgen Klopp they, this week. They, they made a single substitution in the 89th minute, Julian Alvarez coming on. And they left, you know, Imerick Laporte, Jack Grealish, and Mares all on the bench, not even trying to make those substitutions to change things up. I, I think that's weird, personally. Um, and I am also think this is starting to show perhaps, you know, what missing Kyle Walker means for this team. We've seen Nathan Ake start at left back in this game. Cancelo start at right back, even though I think he's actually better at left back now. You know, am I reading too much into this? Is this merely like a blip on the city thing and they'll be able to roll most teams? Um, but I do wonder if, you know, Kyle Walker is, as he is with England too, you know, very important for the kind of tactical functioning of this Guardiola side. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important, especially because City's fluidity across the back is kind of nutty. Uh, and they've never been afraid, you know, even in 
going back to the beginning of the Pep era, they've never been afraid to mix up who is playing where across the back four. And this year, obviously, they play that sort of back three, sort of back two with like inverted fullbacks that we saw really plainly earlier on this year. And it's, it's, I think Kyle Walker is a hard player to replace because of his vision, his recovery speed and his ability to invert. And we saw him really excel in that role earlier this year. They obviously signed Sergio Gomez, who is a left-sided defender. Um, He started against Copenhagen a week and a half ago and then got sent off 25 minutes in. So I think it's tricky. Um, You know, Laporte is also still coming back to full fitness and Nathan Ake can play anywhere across the back, but has his ups and downs. So it's all about finding that sort of fullback, I guess, because it seems like they have plenty of natural center backs between Kumandiaj, Akanji, um, Ake, Laporte, etc. But who's going to be the Joao Cancelo counterpart is the real issue. Um, you know, they have given some playing time in uh, the Champions League briefly to Josh Wilson as brand, but I don't really think that Pep has ever been the kind of person to thrust a youth player into the spotlight, no matter how highly heralded he is. Like we saw how long he sort of quote unquote cooked Phil Foden for like stewed, basically like let him uh, really take his time developing and getting to the level. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a real blip for city. I I don't think it's anything serious for city. Like they've still only conceded 10 goals through 10 games and, for them, I think they have the luxury, unlike Arsenal, Liverpool, and Chelsea, where like there are very few. Like Liverpool is really the only game that I think they feel threatened by. So I, I think that they will be just fine, and I still think like their their next five games are just like so. They should be so easy for them. They've got Brighton, they've got Dortmund in the dead rubber in the Champions League. They've got Leicester, they've got Sevilla, and another dead rubber in the Champions League, and then Fulham, like. They are not going to really stress that much all the way through the World Cup break. Although, now that I'm saying that, they could be one of the teams most impacted by um, the the World Cup break, um, minus Holland, obviously. So, I don't know. I was pleased with this result as an Arsenal fan. Uh, but I don't think, like, at the end of the day, it was sort of just the variance that you would expect. Like, City can't be 100% all the time. I think that point that you made, though, Nathan, about City always generally getting up for Liverpool or getting mentally, you know, psyched out for a Liverpool game kind of played out in this fixture, both from, you know, Liverpool perspective and a city perspective, because this game was not without controversy. I'm not someone to come on here usually and um, berate referees and talk about how terrible refereeing performances was. I usually leave that to, uh, to Caleb, but (laughs) I think, (laughs) I think, uh, (laughs) <laughs> I think that it was a horrific I think we can all agree this is a, it was a horrific refereeing performance from Anthony Taylor who is not consistent at all throughout the 90 he's, minutes I think he's the worst referee in the Premier League now that Mike Dean's retired by the way right and I truly I mean that Bernardo Silva drag of the shirt against Mo Salah was egregious that led to Jurgen Klopp getting sent off for some uh, dissent shall we say some uh, putting it lightly against the referee and then obviously, you know, Jurgen Klopp, or not Jurgen Klopp, um, excuse me, obviously Pep Guardiola, you know, City come out by saying that, you know, he was pelted with coins um, in the in the dugout. It's just looking very unsavory. Jurgen Klopp had some comments, uh, some comments pre-match um, about, you know, the, the, the level of expenditure that City have at their feet. You know, the fact that it's really impossible to 
catch them just because of like who their owners are, you know, where their finances come from, uh, the fact that they can refresh and refresh and have uh, making some pretty obvious points that we've all talked about, about, you know, where how city operate their business that seemingly have like turned around into claims of xenophobia against um, <laughs> the state of Abu Dhabi. It's just all been, it's the fallout from this game has, I think, been a little more culturally significant than we're used to. Uh, more so than just a football match. So I'm intrigued about your both your takes on that. I Can I just say how lame it is that Eddie Howe got involved in this beef? Like, Eddie Howe came out and commented <laughs> saying that, like, Jurgen Klopp's response during the game was, like, unsportsmanlike, and it was setting a bad example for kids. Like, my brother in Christ, you coach Newcastle United. You know what else is bad for kids? Sports washing. Like, it's just, like, this is so dumb. And it's, like, vaguely xenophobic. It's just, like, stay in your lane. Um, but I do think that it's so interesting because Pep and Klopp, I think, like each other a lot. They're kind of, like, locked in that hero and villain arc where, like, without each other, they would have no purpose in life. So, like, they need each other to continue to be strong so that way they can have a purpose in their in their twice-yearly or thrice-yearly battles. So that's my take on it. Yeah, I think they need to have... There needs to be some antagonist to... Guardiola in the league and Klopp is really the only person who can fulfill that role even if Liverpool aren't challenging for the title this year because Arsenal and Arteta and Guardiola aren't going to be you know like on the verge of fisticuffs and you know talking about how bad each other's club is you know like given their relationship so I think Klopp has a tendency to perhaps speak his mind quite uh openly um perhaps in ways that aren't always beneficial to to his club but certainly eddie howe weighing in on this particular situation um is probably the most hypocritical or or detrimental act of it all considering he declined to discuss you know his ownership group um at all last year when when that was all going down so I don't know. I think Klopp will not be on the touchline. Um, or is he was on the touchline today, actually. He was, yeah. I think they appealed, right? They so appealed, okay. Yeah. But whatever. I think we move on, and, and this is more just, you know, the normal city Liverpool shenanigans over the past five years or so. Yeah. I think that's a that's a good good way to put it. And I, I, Liverpool, as you mentioned, Nick, held out today for that 1-0 win uh, over West Ham. And before... Uh, and before we move, to the, sorry, Liverpool held out for a one nil win over our comrades at West Ham, uh, and uh, it was nervy. And they did rely on Jared Bowen missing a penalty with with help from Virgil Van Dyke in this one. Uh, but hey, a win is a win. And uh, the games today and yesterday in the Prem were pretty crap. There were seven games. Uh, sorry, there were seven games between the two days uh, today. There were five goals spread out across the five games. Yesterday, there were three goals spread out across the two games. So I think we're going to see more and more soccer like what we saw today as the season progresses because functionally, teams cannot play their full strength 11 every midweek. Um, but before we move to the Classico, uh, let's talk quickly about United Spurs because this is another game in which Spurs have failed to score Uh Every single player on Spurs today, except for Hugo Lloris, was really bad. Also, this game was just an ugly watch. Like, this game, 
I think I called it last week a meteor game where I'd rather a meteor crash into the stadium than than pick a winner. Like no one looked good for Spurs. Uh, Fred looked world class for United for whatever it's worth. Uh, the Fred Casemiro pairing I think is United's best center mid pairing, and uh, United came away with a two nothing win, but it was not one for the uh, the people who are interested in aesthetics. Yeah, I mean, I think it was another Spurs who still, I think, are having their best start to a, you know, top division season in like 50 or 60 years. Um, couldn't get it done against, you know, a big opponent once again and looked pretty bereft of ideas and quality um, throughout most of this game. I thought, you know, Yves Basuma, who hasn't been in the starting 11, you know, every game this year, despite making you know, a big-ish money move, or at least a step up from Brighton, um, I thought was really poor in the midfield, actually. Really heavy touches, bad fouls, um, and considering that, you know, Conte changed the formation to be, you know, a 3-5-2 versus a 3-4-3 and added another center midfielder, and that was him, um, I think that doesn't bode well for, you know, his ability to really nail down a place over um, Hoiberg or Bentancourt. On the United side, I think the Fred Casemiro pairing is by far the best pairing. And Fred, every once in a while, has one of these 10 out of 10 games where he really looks um, unplayable, and this was one of them. But I think unlocking you know, Bruno Fernandes, who has not scored a lot this year, and him getting a goal was big. Um, I thought the entire front line looked very mobile. I would say if there was one criticism, it would be that Marcus Rashford got into many, many good positions, but his finishing is so bad. Um, and we saw the same thing in what the Champions League last week as well. Um, this could have been four nil if Rashford, you know, could actually beat Larice one on one. But it's definitely a major step forward um, for the club under Ten Hag. And I will say, I think Rashford probably still, despite this performance, has that position nailed down. Ronaldo left walked down the tunnel before the game even finished today oh, no. and when asked he's about a, it he's in such the a drama queen yeah he really is um when asked about it uh in the post-match press conference ten hogs take said, care of it tomorrow they'll take care of it tomorrow um i also thought you know it was interesting seeing ronaldo wearing his earring on the bench now i i could just be not that focused when i'm looking at players on the bench but how usual is it for a player like in the match day you know, 20, um, to have, you know, their jewelry on, on the bench. No, he knew he wasn't getting in this game. Okay. Yeah. I, for a hundred percent. And also like, I don't know him storming off before the end of the game. is just proof that he just has a massive ego in a game like, that they won in an important in game, game that they, they won. That's what I'm yeah. saying. He only, he's, he's completely oh, he didn't win. invested in himself. Right. Yeah, exactly. So lame. Just like, just quit. Just quit. Well, I think there's there is there is that like really probably untrue rumor that he was looking at buying out his own contract potentially. I honestly could like see a scenario in January where they come to some sort of negotiation or agreement of he gets to leave on a free and like pick his own club drama free, right? Uh, this is this is a relationship that clearly needs to end. It's gone really sour. He's sort of the odd man out uh in terms of the United squad and I mean, him walking off today is more than obviously symbolic for what needs to happen going forward with Ronaldo. But I, I would agree with you all um, from your points on this game. I thought this was Ten Hag's 
best game in charge of Man United. I thought you saw so evidently what he wants to do. And he's really adapted, I think, to the personnel that he has. You know, this isn't an incredible United team by any means. But, you know, they had 10 shots on target today, um, which is the, the statistics for this game read like United really could have won this game like four or five nil. Uh, 28 total shots, 86% accuracy in passing. Um, th- I mean, they were they were so fluid, so good going forward. I thought the movement from players like Anthony really impressed me. Anthony overall has has really impressed me. Uh, I think he's been the seamless transition into the side. Uh, Martinez and Varane, once again, getting a clean sheet. They look like an imperious duo at the back. Uh, I'm going to stop now because praising Manchester United this much is uh, making my mouth sour a little bit. But yeah, I thought this was a extremely promising performance from Ten Hag's side. And Conte's Tottenham, once again, in a big game, have they kind of set up like a team that's like at the bottom of the table you know they they sit very deep they don't press the ball nearly as much as an elite team should in this day and age obviously son not being there is an issue kulishevsky not being there is an issue but i i still feel like they should do a little bit more to adapt tactically to the match and instead they kind of just sit back and are quite stagnant for much of the game you can tell players like ivan perisic are getting frustrated visibly, um, you know, with the with the amount of time that they're getting on the ball. You know, Harry Kane once again had a poor showing in a big game, but yeah, I thought you know there's a stark contrast in this two team in these two teams, a team that's quality but kind of stagnating somewhat in Tottenham, and a team that's very much on the up in Manchester United. Very well. With that said, uh, we head into this week, or rather, this, this upcoming weekend's fixtures with two games still to play: Fulham Villa. Leicester leads before uh, this weekend's matches, which include Nottingham Forest, Liverpool, Chelsea United, uh, Arsenal take on Southampton. So I'm sure we'll lose that. And uh, Newcastle take on Spurs. Newcastle will win that if they play like they played today. But there was another marquee fixture this last weekend, the first yearly iteration of the Classico. And this was an interesting game. It definitely was entertaining enough. But Despite the fact that Barcelona outshot Liverpool more than two to one, excuse me, Barcelona outshot Real Madrid more than two to one. Real Madrid came away with a three-one victory, spearheaded by Karim Benzema and maybe aided with some less than good officiating. But uh, I think Barcelona really showed their weaknesses, and that is just the players who they have out injured right now uh, in their back four. Otherwise, I think a full-strength Barcelona might have had a better chance in this game. Yeah, I think a lot went wrong here. I think (laughs) (laughs) that's that's awesome. Um, Sorry, continue. Right, I think you know from the outset, missing Araujo is is big. It will continue to be big. It probably will will turn out to be the reason um, that perhaps we don't make it through in the Champions League and and perhaps with this result to perhaps fall short in La Liga. But, um, you know, you have to do with with what you have. Um, I think I have a few takeaways from this. As you mentioned, from the stats, Barcelona, I think, roughly outplayed Real Madrid, except for the fact that this played out exactly how Real Madrid wanted it to play out, which is 
they are so supremely confident in themselves, in their ability, um, and their ability to get important goals, while Barcelona have no confidence in finishing um, at all. And so despite creating more shots, having more possession, etc., I don't think Madrid ever really felt under that much pressure until maybe, you know, the 80th minute or so. Um, I think this game sealed uh, Busquets' drop out of the starting 11. Um, I thought he was really off the pace um, against Real Madrid's midfield. And I think the Gavi, Pedri, De Jong trio is probably going to be our starting, you know, three moving forward. Um, Dembele and Rafinha were really, really poor. Rafinha really doesn't seem to sort of want to take on a man. Um, he keeps ballooning shots over. And unfortunately, he's starting to look a little bit like, you know, a $60 million bust, which in a lot of ways, I feel like we, we could kind of see coming, right? He's 25 years old. He's probably about as good as he's going to be. And to some extent, there's a reason that, you know, he was the star player on Leeds. He's basically like Wilfred Zaha in a lot of ways, right? He's probably best on a mid-table club in England where he can score 12 league goals a year and have six assists. I'm not sure he's a difference maker for Barcelona. Um, and I think in the next games going forward, we'll probably see Fati and Ferran Torres flanking Lewandowski in some of these big fixtures because they definitely brought significantly more energy there. On the Madrid side, um, you know, Fede Valverde in the right wing role this year has been unbelievable. And, and honestly, he's he probably been... Today, he scored too. a banger again today. He now has five goals and 10 appearances in the Liga this year. Meanwhile, mind you, he only has 11 goals in his Madrid career. So he's really turned that up a notch. He's keeping, you know, Asensio, Hazard, Rodrigo, you know, out of the team a lot of the time. And I don't even know how to describe the role that he plays. He's like a box-to-box winger. Um, and there probably is some German word for that position, but I don't know what it is yet. Um, he, he, he is unplayable. He is unplayable right now. And I was not surprised at all to see him just laser, you know, a goal in Benzema grabbing one as well. And then the penalty wasn't really a penalty. It was super lame. Um, was it Eric Garcia, not even hitting him or the ball. Um, and Rodrigo just stopping the ball himself and falling over. Um, but symbolically, it kind of sealed the deal right when Barcelona were perhaps looking. It was a, a symbolic touch. pen. <laughs> it was a symbolic pen, especially yeah, considering, yeah. Um, you know, Lewandowski was like body checked from behind by like Carvajal earlier, and that wasn't a penalty. But I think if the game had finished 2-1, that would have flattered, you know, the spiritual deficiencies in Barcelona um, too much. So we did not get the job done despite playing okay. Um, and Xavi now has the worst record um, after 50 games as a Barcelona manager uh, since the turn of the century, I believe. Perhaps yeah, worse, worse than Komen, which is saying something. But also, like, the circumstances are different. And No, no, no. I, yeah. I'm just saying, but so far this year, we have not won a big fixture, despite probably, like, sort of being the better team, either on paper or in terms of play. Um, in most of those games. Like, we didn't get the job done against Bayern. We didn't get the job done twice against Inter. And now against Madrid, um, 
you know, we we are now three points behind in what is probably going to be our sort of best chance at success this year. Tough situation to be in. I've talked too much. I'll let you guys, you know, give your your opinions as well. I think the crazy thing coming out of this game is that Barcelona have only conceded, I think, what is it, four goals now in La Liga? Yeah, but 75% of them came in this game. Um, right, exactly, <laughs> which I find incredible because considering that Barcelona, our main critique of Barcelona this season has been their defense, and obviously that's played out in the Champions League. And I think another thing, Caleb, just to, I agree with everything that you said. I think that's a great assessment of what went down. And my opinion is that we're really starting to see Xavi's deficiencies as ostensibly a rookie manager, right? He managed in Qatar to great success, but now he's coming into a Barcelona team heavy in transition that have spent you know, a lot of money to get him players of higher quality uh, in, the, uh, in the absence of Lionel Messi. But I think we're seeing not when, especially when Barcelona go down in games, and this is a criticism that we had of Mikel Arteta too when he took over the, the reins of Arsenal, that when Barcelona go down, he doesn't quite know how to adapt the tactics enough to get them back into the game playing well, right? Because when Barcelona go down, Xavi really emphasizes the wing play, um, gives a lot of rein to Dembele and Rafinha or whoever's on those wings to intricately work the ball into Robert Lewandowski. And when Barcelona went down, Madrid really snuffed out, you know, that tactic. You know, they marked Lewandowski out of the game pretty much. You know, Rafinha and Dembele were quite isolated. Uh, Madrid won the ball back and they were able to progress up the field rather easily as we saw for their second goal. That incredible, you know, move passing move that led to the Valverde shot. And I agree Valverde has been, you know, practically unplayable since the Champions League final where he decimated uh, Liverpool's left-hand side. So, I mean, I think we're starting to see Xavi get outcoached in some of these games, which is a bit worrying from a Barcelona standpoint. Carlo didn't even need to raise the eyebrow in this game in order to get Madrid playing well. And I think, yeah, from a Madrid perspective, they are just firing on all cylinders right now. They know exactly what their identity is. You know, age is not defining them. I thought Kroos and Madras once again dominated the pitch in El Clasico that David Alaba had an incredible game against his former teammate in Lewandowski, really kept him quiet. And yeah, I mean, Madrid have so many different ways to hurt you and they all seem so unselfish right now in, you know, handing off the reins to one another. You know, Vinicius is comfortable passing the ball to Chiuameni, who's comfortable passing the ball to Rodrigo, who's comfortable laying it off to Benzema, you know, who's comfortable laying it off to Valverde or Kroos or Modric or whoever it is. They just seem to care most about winning and keeping this streak that they have alive. Like they look imperious right now and they also look ageless right now, which is quite impressive. Yeah, weirdly enough, I think that Madrid actually have a squad that is less deep than Barcelona's, but that also contains uh, a little bit more quality on the balance of things. And in a complete reversal from, I would say, the first 16 years of this century, I think Madrid have spent a lot better uh, than than Barcelona have as of late. Not that that's anything surprising, um, but Madrid did pick up another win uh, today. And Valverde, in a game where 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 they had like uh, three goals disallowed. Today. Yeah, I think I think Benzema had like a hat trick disallowed. He did end yeah, up scoring did. though. Yeah, yeah. Well, another yeah, report. <laughs> no, you go, Nick. Another important point that I was going to make is that Tony Kroos is the same age as Sergio Busquets, and Luka Modric is in fact even older 
than Busquets. And I think it just says something about the circumstances and the trajectory of each team right now that they're able to protect and um, these that Madrid are able to protect, you know, their older players, able to give them a rest, able to integrate them into the team when it counts the most. And Busquets is sort of left laboring in Xavi's Barcelona setup right now to the point where, you know, Caleb is saying that it's time for him to, you know, make way for Frankie de Jong in a permanent capacity. I just think it's quite fascinating if you to compare and contrast that. Well, while we're on the while we're on the Madrid train, we may as well take a jump to the uh oh actually before we before we move on to this next point, I just want to point out that I was looking through the summary of the Madrid Elche game today and I recognized a name that is truly a blast from the past. Caleb, do you remember Gerard Gumbau? Yes, he was a Barcelona B player. He played like one Copa del Rey game. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I saw that name and it jumped out at me. Uh, and I was like, dang, he's 27 years old now. But anyways, he's he's up there with Wilfred Captum for like exports and midfielders. But uh, the Ballon d'Or took place in the second week of October, because of course it did. And Benzema obviously uh, won the Ballon d'Or, and it wasn't particularly close. But I but feel most like importantly, Lewandowski won that other made-up award. Yeah, he won the Mueller Award for, yeah, I guess, sure. Best Striker. Which I think they made specifically because of the time that they denied him the Ballon d'Or. Well, they also I think you wait didn't you UEFA invent something for him last year? Well, they always they always do because it's all it's all a sham. But I do think the voting this year, as with pretty much every year, showed that it just truly does not like these awards just don't matter. Yeah, how is Mane second in this? Mane was second. Darwin Nunez was twenty (laughs) fifth. Mane being second, he won the... Okay, I'll defend Mane being second. He had an amazing calendar year. He won AFCON. That's Liverpool true. got to the Champions League final. They won two trophies off the back of his performances. Mane being second makes makes a monicum of sense to me. Fair enough. I, I haven't looked into like the individual country-by-country country voting yet. Um, there's always like random stuff. Where there's always... Like, Czech Republic yeah. guy also, there was the time where Lionel Messi voted for Mane as first in that one, I think it was like 2018, potentially 2019. So the money has the respect of his peers as shown by the fact that he won the Socrates award for his charitable contributions as well. Very good. But sorry, Nathan, you were, you were giving us the Ballon d'Or rundown. I was just, you know, Ballon d'Or is like Ballon d'Or, Schmallon d'Or, but still Kareem Benzema's career has been pretty impressive. Um, You know, just between his sort of, France career and then lack of France career and then back to France career to the fact that he's one of the longest tenured players at at any big six club that I can remember. I mean, he's, he signed for Real Madrid in that first Galactica, one of the first 09 Galactica summers. Yeah. I I have a take is I actually, I'll, I'll phrase it as a take, not a question. I think Kareem Benzema is more of a Madrid legend than Cristiano Cristiano Ronaldo. hundred percent. I would a hundred percent agree. It's a it's a good take, I think, and I, I do think that it's interesting because it again speaks to the fact that Cristiano Ronaldo is a complete egotistical player who happened to be incredibly good at soccer for like an eight year or nine year span, but Benzema kept his head down. Like aside from the various scandals that have largely been off the pitch, he's stuck. I, I mean, he could probably have gone and left whenever he wanted, but he'll end up scoring. My guess is he'll end up scoring almost 400 goals for Madrid. Like he's probably their best goal scorer of all time, even better than Di Stefano. Or I mean, 
And they obviously had some they obviously had some good ones over the years. But yeah, Caleb, I like that take. Um, and then there was also the the Copa Trophy for best young player, which I think was also a little bit controversial. This is just ridiculous. This is um, so dumb. It, it went to to Gavi, who I think certainly should have been in the mix. Um, but I think it probably should have gone to either Jude or Musiala, right? Yeah, I think so. But I, I don't I'm... think Gavi is like a terrible choice. No, it's not. Like he's definitely in the trio and definitely ahead of Kamavinga, who's still a bit of a bit part player at Madrid. Um, but that was the other big award. And then Alexia Putelas winning uh, her second consecutive Ballon d'Or. As yeah, well. I mean, she's the best player in the world. Uh, we just haven't been able to see, we weren't able to see her this summer at the Euros because she tore ACL, which is brutal. Um, speaking of women's soccer, by the way, Arsenal women's team played at Lyon today and smacked them. Uh, I think it was 5-1 the final, which was kind of fun to watch passively while I was doing work. But yeah, I, all in all, I mean, these award shows are, I think, in part designed to fabricate news to a certain extent. And I don't think that's like unfair to say, but Benzema winning the Ballon d'Or certainly deserved at the age of 34. So all, all the credit to him. Yeah, and also the symbolism of Zidane handing him the Ballon d'Or. Zidane, the last French player who won the award in 1998. It's incredible that it has been that long since a French player has stood at the head of the podium for the Ballon d'Or. So I think, yeah, a great career achievement for Benzema, who I think, like Luka Modric, deserved this kind of recognition. Although I think this award is certainly more deserved than Modric's was at the time in 2018. Um, a 40-goal campaign getting back into the French national team in the past two years after a really highly publicized divorce from the national team. I think this late stage Benzema is certainly one that's going to go down in the history books as being an incredibly, an incredibly integral part of soccer history. Well, with all of that said, there's only one place for us to go before we say adieu. And that is <laughs> to Germany where Bundesliga watch is fully on and shout out, shout out Yannick Haberer who scored a brace in the first 20 minutes to give Union Berlin a two nil win over Borussia Dortmund today, uh, or rather not today on Saturday uh, at Union Berlin now four points clear at the top of the Bundesliga. So Bundesliga watch is on shout out Union who I think we're all rooting for just on uh, sort of, just on, I don't know, chaos grounds. Union Berlin have also, I believe, I saw a stat that they've created the least XG of any team in the, the big five leagues, and yet they lead uh, the Bundesliga right now a third of the way through the season. So big day for the for the boys in red and yellow. Yeah, I mean, that was the match of what? First, first and fourth um, after this game, Dortmund now, you know, Fairly well off the pace, seven points um, off top in eighth place. They are five, one, and four. They have a negative one goal difference. Uh, I'm not sure we, we've, for whatever reason, I think maybe we're just so focused on how good Bellingham is, but Dortmund are, are low-key or even high-key struggling right now in their sort of post-Holland period. I actually watched him. I watched him play today against Hanover. And they were okay, but again, this team is just, like, they've taken punts on a lot of, like, developing players, and it's hard to do that without someone elite who can lead the line. And obviously, Makoko is a tremendous prospect, and he's only 17 years old and is pretty much their starting striker and occasional left winger, 
but Donnell Malin hasn't really looked like he's recovered from his, his ACL injury. Uh, Oscon is pretty good uh, at CDM, but again, like it's just not, they're missing like Adiyami is still developing as well. They're missing that. Um, they're missing that goal score. It's tough they, because this season's probably very different if they have Hilaire. So I think they right. No, of they, course. they they probably planned much better, and it's just unfortunate that they lost such a key piece. And then the other big game in Bundesliga watch it was what second versus third. Um, they've now inverted places. Bayern giving the beat down to Freiburg. Caleb, five, what is this no. Freiburg team that you speak of? Freiburg. Oh, do you mean, do you mean Freiburg? Freiburg. There's a big weekend uh, in the Bundesliga as uh, Bayern Munich won Saint Nil versus oh Freiburg. Okay. Nathan okay. sounds like the, the, the French villain from the start of The Incredibles. No, I sound like yes, the freaking exactly. the, the food critic in Ratatouille. Oh, uh... <laughs> that's what I was basing it off of. But yeah, um, anyway. actually, I was basing it off of the uh, turnstile inspector in Paris. But uh, yeah, anyway. Yes, but in a game where even Sven Ulrich was stepping in for Manuel Neuer um, and Chupamo Ting started up top, basically everyone got a goal and an assist. Bayern. <laughs> even Sven Ulrich. <laughs> um, they have scored 30 goals um, and only conceded eight. Their goal difference is 22, and they are now hot on the trails of Union. We'll see how much longer this can go. But for now, Bundesliga watch sort of remains. Um, but Bayern seem to have perhaps straightened themselves out a bit. Indeed. Well, with that being said, we will wrap it up here. Barca Villarreal tomorrow is a, a good match for soccer purists. Uh, and then other league action this weekend, as we mentioned, Chelsea United. Uh, and other than that, you know, unless you want to see Union Berlin play Bochum in a matchup of first versus 20th, uh, you might have to choose some less enticing matches on paper. But Champions League, Europa League are back next week as well, including Barca Bayern in a much must win game. We'll probably chat with you guys after. A game we will that. lose. Yeah, and again, Barcelona it's... will lose. Probably not 8-2, but probably like 4-1. Uh, so that's called progress right that's, there. That is progress, yes. But on that note, I have been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Reds. I've been Nick and I'm reading the Anfield Raps uh, player ratings from the West Ham game. And may I just have like 20 seconds to read Darwin Nunez's little blurb here? Yes. Nathan, you might have to, you might have to bleep I'm, Nick, I'm, Nick, I'm powerless to stop you. Okay, so they gave Darwin Nunez a 10. And here's the blurb that is associated with that 10. Unreal. A wild footballer. A fucking maniac of chaos. Neil has just come in after the post-match pint and said he's like The Rock. He is a superstar in the making. He has everything. Chaos follows him. Like a hurricane. Chaos. Mayhem. The one tipped over that was just fantastic. The one against the post? Christ. The goal bait. A shit Andy Carroll. Okay, lads. That is one of the best headers you will see. Save that. His movement is second to none. He's quick. Fucking quick. He will score hundreds for Liverpool. Star quality. So you heard it here first. Darwin Nunez. A legend in the making. I have been Nick Given, And on that note, viva Uruguay. Viva Nunez. We will see you all next time.